Psalm 75. Psalm 75. We will continue in the, in the prayer songs of Asaph, who was the worship leader in the Old Testament temple. And we studied his life, and now we're studying his psalms. And we started um, there in Psalm 73 talking about worship and perspective and how we can come and worship and adjust our perspective. Uh, psalm 74 was, was kind of a darker psalm in some way. It was, it was about uh, worship and lament. Lament is, is, is a Bible word for grief. And it taught us how that, that, that God wants us to grieve, but we don't have to grieve apart from him, that we can grieve as a form of worship to him. And it's powerful when we grieve in that way. And now Psalm 75, uh, we're going to talk about this worship and vindication. You'll understand that more, I hope, as we work our way through the message. Now, to understand Psalm 75, you first have to understand uh, its relation to the chapter before it, Psalm 74. It's been several weeks since we preached Psalm 74, but like I told you, it was a psalm of lament where God's people were, were grieving over the destruction of their temple by the Babylonians. The Babylonians was a wicked people group led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And they led, he led his army to take the Hebrews captive. And they did that violently. His soldiers went into the temple. That was their place of worship. It meant a lot to them. They destroyed it. They not only destroyed it, they hung up their national banners inside of it. They bragged about their victory. And even worse, they set the place on fire. Psalm 74 is a prayer song where, where God's people are lamenting over the fact uh, uh, that in the face, watch this, uh, of this injustice, God seems to be inactive. They're struggling with that. Struggling with the fact that, that the Babylonians come in and seize them, seize their children, seize their people, destroy their place of worship, and God seems to have his hands in his pocket. That's, that's what they ask in verse 10 and 11. Would you look at that in chapter 70, uh, 74, verse 10 and 11? Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom. So, so, so Asaph, who, who wrote this psalm, couldn't understand why God would allow his name to be mocked. Their temple to be burned and yet remain inactive when he could easily prove his sovereignty and his power. Have you ever felt kind of that way about something going on in your life? Maybe not that severe because we haven't been seized, taken captive, and our church hasn't been burnt down. But have you ever felt like you've been through a season where you're just terribly attacked by the devil? while at the same time sensing that God wasn't near? Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you love, but you still chose to take the high road, but at the end of the day sense that God was still letting them get away with it? Have you ever been mistreated or misaligned or misunderstood at work? Refused to retaliate. You didn't want to lose your testimony testimony, or, or lose your job. And even though you, you took the high road, you still got the short end of the stick while God seemed to have his hands in his pockets. 
Have you ever struggled with the immorality in our country? You ever struggle with the injustice that is rampant in, in America and notice that it seems to go unpunished by God at times? If you, if you really appreciate righteousness, then you have felt the tension in your heart about the wickedness in our country. If you love that which is holy, then you abhor that which is unholy. And if you're like me, you see what's going on all around us and you think, God, when? God, how long? That's where Asaph and God's people were. They were in this difficult season of waiting, waiting on God to make things right. That's what vindication means. God, how long are you going to wait until you do something about that? Interestingly, Asaph isn't the only one that had this struggle. He wasn't the only one that waited impatiently at times for God to make things right. A man by the name of Habakkuk wrote about the same thing. In fact, he opened up his, 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 his book this way, O Lord, how long shall I cry? That's exactly what they asked in Psalms. And thou will not hear. Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. How timely is this? Therefore the law is slack and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. He was doubting God's ability to judge right. And Asaph communicated the same thing. God, are you slacking off? God, are you seeing what I'm seeing? When are you going to do something about it? That's the question posed in Psalm 74. Psalm 75 answers the question. Are you with me? The editors of the book of Psalms resolve this tension of how long by placing Psalm 75 as a response to the turmoil of Psalm 74. And it's going to be proven as we study it that they are so closely connected. Here's what Psalm 75 is going to teach us. It's going to teach us as believers what we are to do between the time of injustice and vindication. It's going to teach us what to do between the time that you're wronged and the time that God makes it right. The in-between time, listen, is crucial for Christians. And it's in this in-between time that, that believers make some really regrettable decisions. Would you agree with that? That in between the time of, of injustice and vindication, some believers make some dumb, dumb, dumb choices. What are we to do in one word? Here's what we're supposed to do in the in between time. In one word, and I don't want, it's going to sound tried at first, but it's true and I'll prove it to you. We ought to worship. Worship. Asaph showed us that worship isn't just a once a week occasion. It is a lifestyle. That means we must learn how to remain prayerful and worshipful even when God seems to be inactive. Even when God seems to be silent. Even while we're waiting for God to make things right, we still must worship Him. Why? It keeps us from taking matters into our own hands. 
How many know that when we take matters into our own hands, we always make matters worse? So Asaph writes a prayer song and he teaches us what to do while we're waiting for God to make things right. Look at verse one. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. For that thy name is near thy wondrous works declare. Here's the first thing we ought to do. Remain thankful. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. If you're like me, you're thinking in your mind, if this psalm is all about injustice, then how is thanksgiving the starting line? How does that begin it? I I, I don't understand how that's possible. Here's how. Because Asaph realized that even when life is at its worst, God still deserves worship. He still deserves praise. He still deserves a thankful heart because there's always something to be thankful for. What did they thank God for? Well, the last part of verse one says that thy name is near thy wondrous works. Declare, they thank God for his nearness. Now, if you're studying and thinking with me tonight, then this contradicts what they were just questioning about God in chapter 74 in verse 1, where they say this, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Literally, the song in their hymn book before they get to Psalm 75 is questioning God's nearness. And then the opening line of Psalm 75 is thanking God for his nearness. Do you ever feel that way? (laughs) Bipolar almost. Remember why they didn't feel like God was near. The Babylonians came and destroyed their temple. This is a place they experienced God's presence. Now it lay in ashes. On top of that, God's not doing anything about it. So it seems as though God has clearly told them, I'm done with you. I'm not interested in a relationship with you. I've cast you off. They said forever. They truly were convinced so much they wrote a song about it that God is forsaken, has forsaken us forever. But but Asaph's prayer song reminds them that God is near even when the circumstances seem to indicate otherwise. The temple may be gone, but its absence cannot separate God's presence from, from, from his people. And that's the same thing. And, and, and the truth for you and I, the, the overwhelming evidence, watch here, based on, on your circumstances, might say to you that God is not near. But that's when you, by faith, have to choose to worship him, not based on what you feel, but not based on what you see, but on what you know to be true. What do you know to be true about God's presence? Well, here's what's true. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. That's straight from God's word. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. That's God's word. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That's God's truth. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. That's the Bible truth. While we're waiting for God to make things right, we'll often feel like we have nothing to thank him for because... We feel abandoned. We feel alone. That's when you have the purpose in your heart 
to stay thankful for his presence in your life based on what you know to be true. Listen, when injustice prevails in a relationship, when injustice prevails at work, at church, in our country at large, or even in the life of somebody you love and care for, our inclination, is it not, is to take upon us a spirit of cynicism. Let our sour spirit overtake us. We combat that through worshiping God for his nearness, even if it doesn't feel like he's near. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, mature Christians, you know what they do? They act their way to a feeling. Yeah, pastor taught us this for years. They, they, they don't wait till they can feel their way to an action. Did you notice thankfulness was at the top of the song? Not sure he felt like thanking God right from the start of this injustice. Sometimes you've got to just do what you know is right and the feelings will catch you. And that's where a lot of Christians go wrong. They want to feel it before they come to church. Why, why, why didn't you come to church? Man, I just, man, I'm not feeling it. Why, why, why didn't you show up for your ministry? I'm just not feeling it. Here, I want to challenge some of you to grow to the point in your spiritual life where you can do things for God when you don't feel like it. When you sing, you don't feel like it. You serve when you don't feel like it. You give when you don't feel like it. You come on a Wednesday when you don't feel like it. You pray when you don't feel like it. You thank God when you don't feel like it. And watch, just watch how God honors your choice, honors your action, honors your obedience, honors your faith, and he will, he will let the feelings eventually catch up with you. If, you. if you agree with that, say amen. amen. That's the first way to stay worshipful while you're waiting on God to make things right. Number two, rehearse the truth of God's righteous judgment. So you remain thankful, but then you begin to rehearse the truth of God's righteous judgment. There are several things that Asaph uh, rehearsed about God's judgment. I want to give you the first one in verses two and three. And it's this, God's judgment is on time. Look at verse two. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. Now you're going to have to really lock in here for a second. You have to study with me because the way this was translated in the English language in verse two makes it very difficult to interpret. He said, when I shall receive the congregation, the word congregation, as we use it today, is almost entirely referring to an assembly of people. But, but the Hebrew word is moed, which means that it can mean either the appointed place, appointed being a, being a key word, or the word congregation in the Hebrew could have meant the appointed time. In Psalm 74 and verse 4, it meant the appointed place. He said, thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. That he was talking about their temple that was destroyed. Their appointed place of worship. But in Psalm 75 verse 2, the word means God's appointed time. Here's what Asaph is saying. The appointed place may have been desecrated, but the appointed time for judgment is still entirely within God's control. From the perspective of Psalm 74, God's people felt like they could take no more. It was time for God to act like right now. But Psalm 75 responds with the assurance that God is in control and he will act in his righteous judgment at just the right time. The appointed time. Now to solidify this as the truth, Asaph points to God's ability to sustain the earth in verse 3. Are you with me? Go to verse 3. He's let me prove this to you. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. 
I bear up the pillars of it. Look up here. From our perspective, sometimes the world looks like their world. It seems to be falling apart. So many things are going crazy. But the verse assures us that God is holding up the pillars of the earth. What does that mean? The world's stability depends on him. And he's doing a pretty good job holding it all in place. In like manner, the, the morality of our country seems to be crumbling. It's amazing. I literally wrote this sermon two and a half weeks ago. In some ways, corruption and sin seem to be having its way while righteousness seems to be silent. But listen here, just as God is the basis for planet Earth's stability, he is also the basis for our world's moral order. And it may seem that the moral order of our country has been shaken and it's been challenged, but we cannot lose sight of God's uh, steady hand and, and that he will in his perfect time restore it back to perfect order. We need to trust his timing. We need to trust that, that, that he will judge uprightly. He will judge at his appointed time. It's our only hope. If not, we're going to drive ourselves crazy as God's people. We're going to get discouraged with the injustice that is seeming to prevail against righteousness. You have to trust that if God is holding the, 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 the pillars of the earth stable, the sun is still shining, the moon is still in place, the stars are still hanging, your heart is still beating, He is going to set straight the moral order of the world as well. Amen? Number two, God's judgment is under His control. Look at verse 4 and 5. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly. And to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. Now what is he saying? Pay close attention. The, the horn in this day was a symbol of power and strength. The idea of lifting up your horn was referring to self-exaltation. It was, it was taking delight in your own power, even glorying in the power that you held over other people. What was he referring to? He's referring to chapter 74. When the Babylonians who, who went into the temple destroyed the temple. And then verse 4 of 74 says, says this. They roared in the midst of it. What did they do? I'm imagining in my mind they cried victory. In some sarcastic, boastful, prideful way they said, We just defeated God's house and God's people. Now, that's a dangerous thing to do, <laughs> to roar at God's people like that. That's not wise. I say that because of what verse 6 and 7 says. They remind themselves of God's judgment and that he controls it. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But who's the judge? God's the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Follow me. The Babylonians might think that they've exalted themselves through their own strength and their own power, their own horn. And God's people might have even felt, and we know they did, like the Babylonians get the credit for putting them down. But God is making it clear that he's the judge, that he's the one in control of both lifting up his people and putting down his people. God alone is the source of all human failure and he's the source of all human success. Watch here. It's not hard to see how this might apply to the people of God who are in exile. 
Because the temporary triumph of the Babylonians, the temporary demise of the Jews, were both under the hand of God. It didn't slip beyond God's control. He wasn't in heaven, and he got caught texting somebody, and the Babylonians snuck into the temple and, and, and pulled a quick one on God. No, the point is clear. Every aspect of our current circumstances, no matter what side of justice that we're on, is still under the control of a mighty God. If, oh man, if the righteous are ruling in Washington, D.C., it's because God put them there. If the wicked are ruling in Washington, D.C., it's because God let it happen. There have been times in history and Bible history and world history where God in his sovereignty has allowed wicked men and wicked women to have influence and power while at the same time allowing righteous men and righteous women to hold very little power or influence. Listen, friend, that does not mean God is inactive. It does not mean God is inattentive. It does not mean God is uninvolved. It does not mean that God endorses that which is evil. God is holy. God is God. He is the final judge. He has the final say. And he will lift up whoever he wants to lift up. And he will put down whoever he wants to put down. One thing we must rehearse over and over in our minds in 2021 and through all of the chaos is this. Our God is still in control. Yeah, give God some praise for that. Absolutely. But this doesn't just apply on a national level. It applies in your place of work. As mindful as God is about who gets in the Senate, who gets in the Congress, who becomes a leader of the free world, he's just as mindful about who gets promoted as your manager or your supervisor and who gets overlooked. He's just as mindful who gets left, left on the team and who gets laid off the team. You understand that's under his control as well. God has powerful sovereignty over the big, big areas and positions in our world, but he also has everyday sovereignty in the places like McDonald's and National Beef and Seaboard and USD 480. And in God's sovereignty, he may allow someone who you deem unworthy to get the promotion over you. They may even lift up their horn in pride and leverage their power irresponsibly. Listen, Christian, don't let that shake you. Don't let the injustice of that situation cause you to doubt God or become bitter towards God. He's in control. He makes the final call. You do your job well. And let God deal with what you can't control. Stay hopeful. Stay worshipful. Stay positive. Share the gospel. Invite co-workers. Do what is right. Let the king of kings be the king of kings. Amen? Amen. Here's the third thing about God's judgment. We're moving along. It's thorough. Look at verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup. And the wine is red. It is full of mixture. He poureth out the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. Now, this is, this is a, a crazy verse. It, it's another proof for why I think Psalm 75 is a direct response to Psalm 74. I want you to look over in verse 11 of Psalm 74. It'd be on the screen. He said, why withdrawest thou thy, what's the next word? Amen. Even thy right, next word. 
pluck it out of thy bosom. In other words, get it out, get it out, get your hands out of your pockets, God. He's talking about the hand. But Psalm 75 verse 8 reminds us that in God's hand is a cup. God doesn't have his hands in his pockets. You can't have a cup in your hand and have your hands in the bosom at the same time. The cup was a symbol for God's wrath. We know that in scripture. That's why Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane said this, let this cup pass from me. What was he talking about? The cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink for the sins of all mankind. It's a symbol of God's judgment. In Psalm 74, they accuse God of having his hands in his pockets, but they're reminded in Psalm 75 that God's hands aren't in his pockets. He's holding the cup of wrath, and in his time, he will pour out his judgment upon the wicked. That's for certain. In, in fact, it's going to be so thorough that Asaph goes so far as to say that the wicked will not just drink the liquid in the cup, they'll also receive the dregs of God's judgment. You know what dregs are? They're the things you don't drink on the bottom of your cup. They sit on the bottom of a cup of, in that day, wine. In our day, coffee. The point is that God's judgment will be so certain, so severe, so complete that the wicked will get every last drop of his wrath down to the dregs. Why are you worried about being God in their life? If he's going to wring out his judgment to the very last drop, even the nasty dregs, let him do it. Revelation speaks of this happening directly to Babylon. The very people that, that, that came and shook them up in Psalm 74. God's going to have the final word. Look at it. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. That great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of wrath of her fornication. Look at, look at Revelation 18. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Next verse. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich the abundance of her uh, delicacies. Here's what he's saying. Babylon, they are pouring out their cup of wrath on God's people right now. But, but when, when, it's, when it's God's time, he will ultimately pour his cup of wrath on them. God will win in the end. Why is that important for God's people? Because some of us don't struggle as much with believing that God will make things right. We just don't like the way in which he's doing it. And we always think, God, that's all you're going to do? They made me feel this way? And that's all you're going to do to them? And so when we don't trust that God's judgment will one day be thorough, we take matters into our own hands and we say, God, if that's all they're going to get, then I'm going to go ahead and finish up the task for you. So let me log into Facebook real quick and make them feel a little bit about the way they made me feel. Because God, you don't have a Facebook account and you can't call them out like they called me out. So I'm, I'm going to execute thorough judgment because it seems like you're not doing that right now. God, let me go to church and sit as far away from them as I can. Give them the silent treatment. Treat their kids like trash and let just send a clear message that I'm unpleased with them. Because it, it looks like, I mean, they're up singing in the choir. They're out here with a smile on their face. And I'm just telling you, they're faking it. They've got to feel bad for what they did to me. 
And if you're not going to exact that, they're going to still be able to sing and they're going to still be able to go on with a, with a suit and a tie and a dress and look all their Sunday best and got everybody faked. I'm going to make sure, I'm going to make sure that they're found out. Are you with me? See, that's why we have to believe God's judgment is thorough. Here's the thing. It just not, might not be thorough right now. God might not clean up the mess or make things tangibly, visibly, physically right, right in front of your very eyes right now. But one day, God will make things right. And by the way, why do you so bad want him to make things right right now? Why are you so addicted to your own vindication? Why is that your obsession? What if God gave you what you deserved? Would you want, would you want vindication to be a reality in your life? Why are you addicted, child of God? to vindication in your own situations when someone's wronged you. I'll tell you why. Because we're bitter. We're angry. We're unforgiving. We're selfish. And so we expect God to do, to pour out his cup of wrath and the dregs whenever we're wrong. But when we wrong him, all we want is grace. All we want is mercy. That's the truth. That's, that's the Bible truth tonight. And we would do well, we would do well to work, stay worshipful by rehearsing those, tr those truths. God's judgment is thorough. God's judgment is, is always under his control. And God's judgment is in perfect timing. And then the last two verses give us the last thing we got to go. Look at the last two verses. This is how he closes the psalm. But I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. What is he singing about? What's he declaring? Verse 10. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. The psalmist that came to this point where he didn't just remain thankful, he didn't just rehearse over God's righteous judgment, but he's able to end this moment of prayer and worship by resting in God's righteous judgment. That means this, just letting it go. Giving it over to God. It's in incredible. Psalm 74, he was a doubtful worshiper. Worshiper. Now, 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 now in Psalm 75, he's a hopeful worshiper. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I've processed all this. I've asked God the questions. I, I've pleaded with God in prayer to be active to say something, to, to do something on my behalf. But after I've remained thankful, after I've rehearsed that he is a righteous judge, I'm coming to this conclusion. Watch here. Worship is mine. Vengeance is his. My responsibility is to be a restful worshiper. And God's responsibility is to make things right in his time and his way. And I would say the same thing to you. Worship is yours. Vengeance is his. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. 
Let it be. If you need any comfort at all, you can worship God because one day he will bring down a new heaven and a new earth. And all things will be made right. And if you're saved tonight, you're on the right side of that vindication. If you're not saved tonight, like Brother Justin wasn't saved a couple hours ago, you do not want to be on the wrong side of that wrath. I would much rather feel like I'm getting the short, of the stick, short end of the stick on earth than get God's judgment for all eternity. So what do you do, Christian? Well, you just, number one, get saved. Number two, worship him, even through injustice. That's yours. Worship is yours. Vengeance is God's. Maybe you need to apply that right now as a citizen of the United States of America. And maybe that's not a big deal to you. And that's fair. Maybe you need to apply it at work. In a relationship at church. Or in your family or extended family. Or a longtime friend. Or in a situation where somebody wrongs somebody you love and care for. However you need to apply it, understand your job is worship. God's job is vindication. And you can remain worshipful while you wait on him to make things right. You do not have to run from God when he seems silent and far away. You don't. Trust him through that. You agree with the Bible? Say amen. amen. Stand to your feet. Let's respond to the